0: Oh, well, thank you so much, guys. Hey, you know what I want to do? Can we hear it for Lincoln for Sharon up there? I mean, that's that's awesome. And for Catherine, and every okay, uh, but uh, but really uh, great job, Lincoln. I wanted to clap. I think some of us did along the way. Wanted to clap you, but in great job, great job up there. Thank you so much for sharing. Well, Katie, uh, it's good to have you back from maternity leave. For those who don't know, this is Katie's uh, first time up here since maternity leave. So welcome to little Zeke. uh, Where did you go? There you are. Uh, Little Zeke is over there. Um, But I need to tell you this too. um, I don't often like to bring up. Um, private staff issues to the public group, but I need you to know that Katie and I have a significant disagreement, and I think it's important that we air it here. A few months ago, we were at a staff meeting and she pulls out a snack. And what she pulls out are cherry tomatoes (laughs) and just starts eating them. Now, I need to tell you that I was disgusted by that moment. I gotta be honest with you. I'm like, what is going on? You're just eating raw vegetables just straight up. Like, that's not a snack. And she said, she said, you know what? They're cherry tomatoes. They're like candy. (laughs) Well, there were three guys in the room and Katie. Now, how many of us thought it was like candy, right? One of us thought it was like candy. Now, I need to say that the rest of the staff, the ladies, backed Katie up, and now we have a staff division among us. Now, here's what happened a couple weeks ago. I get home and Jen is like, guess what I bought? I'm like, I don't know what you bought. Look at the counter. Well, here's what she got on the counter, okay? I don't know if you can see this too well. This is a grainy, pixelated thing. These things are called lolly bombs. Anyhow, this is not a market. I don't care if you buy these or don't buy these. I'm not trying to sell them, but here's the deal. This, this clears up the problem once and for all. If you can zoom in on this, here we go. Look at this. At first, they say these little cherry tomatoes are candy on the vine, except that candy is crossed out with a clear strike through and it says tomatoes on the vine above that. Does everybody see that? Yep, so clearly we have clarity here about what exactly is going on. And here's how lollipops they promote themselves. This way, they are a yellow cherry tomato on the vine that is sweet like candy and the color of sunshine. Isn't that amazing? That's so wonderful. So, so here's the deal. So here, here's the deal. Sometimes, now I, I suppose if you're on Katie's side that there, there could be debate about whether these things are tomatoes or vegetables or candy, I suppose. But here's the principle. Here's why I tell you this story. This is a really important principle, and this is, you're going to be so glad you came to church this morning to learn this. That is this. Sometimes there's just no convincing the other side how wrong they are. You're welcome. Thank you for being here. I'd like you to try to apply this principle in your marriage, see how it works. Try to apply this principle with your friends, with your boss, and see how this works and maybe with your teammates, and just see how it goes if you try to live this way, because there's no way sometimes to convince people just how wrong they actually are. (laughs) And yet what's kind of funny and sad at the same time is sometimes we actually live this way, isn't it? Sometimes, even though we can joke about this, and by the way, I love having Katie here on staff, and clearly we have the ability to Relate there, but really, I'm so grateful for you, Katie, and what you, what you bring. But listen, at the end of the day, sometimes I actually live like this, and maybe, maybe you've seen this too. I was reading a book um, from Dan White the other week called Love Over Fear. Dan um, used to be a pastor, um, and through some traumatic experiences, resigned from his role over a couple of decades, and is now leading a, a healing. A ministry healing center in costa rica i believe for people who are kind of hurt by ministry stuff well dan wrote this he said uh, to start his book he wrote this he said a few years back i had two separate events occur in the same month that stirred up a storm within me first i had an individual who attends my church someone dear to me decide to leave the circumstances around her departure left me scratching my head she gently shared with me Dan, I don't feel safe in this church knowing there are liberals here who believe so differently than me. I just can't relax and be myself. I tried desperately to communicate safety and that there was space for her, but it wasn't enough. Fast forward just a couple weeks later and a couple people came to me with the same intense concern, yet this time from the opposite angle. Dan, we're not sure we'll ever feel settled here with people who hold such conservative positions. We need a church that takes sides on these types of issues." I tried to persuade them that our church was a space for both conservatives and progressives to dwell in community together. They made it clear they'd be looking for a truly progressive church. I grieved that both of these folks could not stay in the mix together. They were repelled by each other. Rather than moving toward one another, despite their differences, they chose separation. I sense this moment, he wrote, was a snapshot of the state of our country, and the church, more importantly. And ever since, I've been on a journey asking the question, can we coexist together? Can we coexist together? That's a great question. This story may be true for your church experience, it may not be. It may be true for your personal relationships, or it may not be. But people do seem to be polarized and polarizing. I read um, numerous articles in the past several months, maybe you've seen some of these. Their headlines are, red states are getting redder, blue states are getting bluer. Reading about people moving to places um, like Austin, Texas, because they want, the political views of Austin, people moving from Austin because they want the political views outside of Austin, people moving to areas that can be around people who are just like them, because sometimes it's impossible to convince the other side just how wrong they are, and so it's better just to live with people who are kinda like you and maybe like me. Now, one might think maybe in the church this would be different. Maybe in the church, Christians can figure it out a little bit differently. Barner Research tells us a little bit of a different story. Barna Research puts it this way, as they did their study, that Christians are even more likely not to have friends who are different from them, especially when it comes to religious beliefs, 91% mostly similar, ethnicity, and political views. So what you're seeing there is that almost a 90% clip, if you take the average Christian in North America, this is the Barna Research study field, if you take the average church-going, self-identifying Christian, the people who are around them, 90% of them would believe the same religiously, would look the same, ethnicity, um, culture, cultural background, and would essentially vote the same and have the same viewpoint. We are not necessarily any better in the church at bridging divides between people who think their tomatoes are vegetables and those tomatoes are candy. In fact, we're almost just like everybody else. The candy people go on one side and the vegetable people go on the other. And then we worship with and relate to and work with people who are often just like us. So I'm asking the question of myself. Does Christian love require something different? Does it? Does Christian love require something different? Not just love, love, but Christian love. There's actually talking about and maybe... Pressing into Christian love requires something different. And this morning, I want to press into this a little bit and essentially make this case and let you decide what you where you're going to fall. That basically this, that Christian love, it reimagines the space between me and you. Christian love reimagines that space that exists between me and you. And it doesn't fall into the old patterns and habits of separation. Now, I want to use a verse of scripture to try to push forward this idea. And so I want to invite you, if you have a Bible with you, to turn to a letter that a guy named Paul wrote hundreds and hundreds of years ago. It's um, to a church in Corinth. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is where we are. So if you have a Bible with you, go ahead and open up to that. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in the chair near you. That's our gift to you, by the way. But 1 Corinthians chapter 13, I'm just going to cover one verse this morning, and it's verse 4 of 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Before I get there, uh, I want to say one more thing as a caveat before I get there. Whenever you, talk, whenever you talk about love, which is what this greatest series is all about, there's no way to cover everything about love. My goodness. And if you say, try to say everything, you'll say nothing all at the same time. And so I have a particular focus in this. I, am, I believe that there is a step that we can take toward hope and healing in our relationships. And that's what I'm focusing on. I'll say that again, I'm focusing on what step can we take toward hope and healing in our relationships? Assuming a polarized and polarizing world, what step can love help me rethink to have hope for my relationships and healing for my relationships? That's what I'm focusing on, not everything else. Now, with that being said, there are some things that I'm going to say this morning, my next caveat. By the time I'm done with the caveats, you'll have almost nothing to, to, to listen to. Here's particularly important for this morning. Um, What I'm gonna push forward is I think generally true. In other words, most of the time true, maybe 90, maybe 95% of the time true. However, there are times, extremes, where what I will say this morning may not be the best thing for you to do, particularly if you are in an abusive relationship, for example. If you're in an abusive relationship, what you're going to need to do, I'm going to ask you to do, is filter at a different level. Because what I have to do this morning, what I have to say this morning, I don't want to just appeal to you out of your soft heart and conscience and desire to please God. To, to, re, to put yourself back into an environment where things can be more hurtful and harmful for you. I would say that's my one other caveat. I just want to say here, you, can, you might need wisdom, wisdom to know how to apply this. But I will say for the, for the majority of us, What I have to say this morning I think can be helpful for 90 to 95 percent of our relationships most of the time okay so with that being said is that enough caveats all right enough for now let's go into verse 4 and see what Paul has to say here again really simple verse he puts it this way he says love is patient love is kind it does not envy it does not boast and it is not proud Love is patient, it is kind, it doesn't envy, it is not, does not boast, and it is not proud. That's all that we're going to talk about this morning. Now, there are two things at the beginning of this verse that are positive and three things at the end that are negative. Look how he begins. He says, love is patient, all right? Love is patient. What he's talking about here, this is what I'm going to call an attitude to have. Here's this attitude to have toward people. Now, this is, this is so important because this is how God functions toward us. I'm so grateful, and maybe you're so grateful, too, that God, that, that when I screw up, God doesn't zap me. You grateful for that? When I sin and fail again, but God doesn't condemn me. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. When I'm hypocritical, which I am with great regularity, God doesn't cancel me. When I think less of you than I should... God doesn't set me to the side and say, you're over there, and all the rest of the good people are over there. I am grateful, and I don't know about you, but I am so grateful that God fundamentally withholds judgment from me with great regularity, that he is so patient with me. And I would argue he is so patient with you, too. And this is the basis of the the call for patience. Not just so that you can be a good person, but to reflect the kind of long-standing patience that God the Father has toward you and has toward me. Now, I wonder sometimes, however, that if patience is easier for God because, well, he's God. Like, would it be easy for you to be patient if you were, you know, perfect? Maybe. Because I am not God, nor do I ever claim to be anywhere close to that, so patience challenges me. I was trying to think of how to describe this, and I I think I'm gonna use a football analogy. Pardon me if you're not a football person, I hope to explain it well enough, but if you can imagine with me that I have a friendship with someone and we're together on the football field and we're at the same yard marker, let's say the midfield. Well, if they do something wrong, if they offend me, there might be someone, maybe myself, I also function now as the the referee, and so I'm gonna throw a flag. I'm gonna throw a flag on you. You shouldn't have said that to me. You should have called me back earlier you shouldn't have been late to that meeting you shouldn't have said that about my family you shouldn't have done that flag on the play and it's on you you go back 15 yards all right you'll have some time to make that up but you're going backwards now if you do that again you know where i'm going to do i'm going to put you back whoop flag on the play you're not allowed to talk to me like that we already had that conversation you can't do that so you get backed up a little bit further and as you get backed up a little bit further and further in my little relational football field what happens is a gap forms between me and you. And I begin to look at you differently and look at you with skepticism and distrust. And then I have to confront this statement here that love is patient. What does that mean when there's a growing gap and maybe that gap is justifiably there? Maybe you have done something legitimately wrong for me. What does that mean? Because it doesn't take long. For me, it usually takes two or three significant things, and then you're off the football field, and you're out of the stadium, right? And it's almost like love is saying, okay, yep, that's the third one. I'd like you to add another stadium to your gap tim i'd like to you to give them more space i'd like you to to give them a longer lead time i'd like you to be just as patient with them as god is with you love is patient it gives them not just a hundred yard field but another field and another one and another one and maybe another one yet yeah, and this is hard and this is confusing and it, it it troubled the disciples of jesus too one time they asked him when jesus talked to them about this concept They asked him, Jesus, well, how many times do you think that we should forgive people? Because they they thought, you know what? I mean, honestly, most people forgive, you know, a couple times, two, three times. I'm probably in that two, three, maybe four range, depending upon the severity of it and how old you are, right? If you're super young, we'll forgive you a million times. But if you're old enough to know better, then you're old enough to know better. You get about two or three and then I'm not in anymore, okay? They're like, should we forgive seven times? What if we double the amount of time that most normal people will give to forgive? And Jesus says, that's a great idea. Thank you for trying super hard. Let me take your seven and say you should forgive 70 times the best effort you could imagine. Forgiveness is simply an extension of patience. You don't forgive if you're not patient. And so Jesus is pushing on the disciples saying, God's view of this relational gap is different than yours. I have just a couple of times where you can offend me and then I'm done. Paul is saying here, love is fundamentally patient, just like God is patient with you. Let me push on this a little bit more if I can. Push is the wrong word. Anyway, every... Every seed grows in native soil, right? And every person grows in a a native environment. As I think about the the need to push on patience a little bit, I wanted to push on one part of how we've, um, you know, what what I've experienced here and what you've experienced here, what I've experienced in my life, and maybe what you've experienced in your life. There's, uh, and let me illustrate it this way. About 10 years ago, 12 years ago, uh, I was sitting in my office with someone, and they said very clearly after a little while, we were having a meeting that was one of those meetings we had to have, but no one really loved having it. Uh, we needed to talk about some difficulty and challenge that, that existed um, in the church and in the relationships in, in that room. Finally, uh, an individual, and I can still tell you where they were sitting, they said to me very clearly, They said, they said Tim, with a little bit of energy in their voice, this is the first time they had spoken all meeting. Tim, We sweep things under the rug around here. That's what we do. I thought, oh, well, I've actually never heard anyone say that before in those words. I didn't say that, but I'm thinking that in my mind. I'm like, well, I know people do that, (laughs) but I never heard anyone admit it like that. What he was saying is, Tim, you're not from around here, are you? You didn't grow up around here. You don't know what we do here. Let me clarify for you what this and i'm going to use this passive aggressive term to label that he said let me it was almost as if he was identifying the soil in which he had been raised and then he went on to tell the story about how he did that with his children and how it was healthy how he did with other people and how it was good it kept peace in the relationships but what it is is a passive aggressive approach to life in which i would argue The soil that some of us have grown up in keeps us from being patient, and patience challenges passive-aggressive thinking. Because passive-aggressive thinking says this, and I've heard this one multiple times, what good is there in talking about our differences if they're not going to change their mind? Can you imagine that working with your spouse? You see, that says, you know, I just want out faster. There's no point in getting together because I just want out. You may have seen it too. People just walk away rather than engage and discuss things in which they have thrown flags on each other because there's a gap. Why bother? I'm going to passively remove myself, but don't, but watch this part. I'm going to aggressively come back on the outskirts and let other people know what I think about the situation. Patience, Pushes on the soil in which some of us were raised and says, Let me encourage you to rethink passivity in those places where you have a gap. That there is value in getting the candy people and the vegetable people to the table, not to change minds, but because love requires patience, not quickness to bail. Now, that's an attitude to have, and that was a lot on that. He goes on to say this, love is also kind. That's simply the next level. That's an action to take. The attitude is patience. The action is kindness. Last week, I sat in a CEO's office in one of our, um, in our area here, and we were talking about our Enneagram numbers. For those of you who are Enneagram people, you'd love that. For those who aren't, you hate that. Anyway, it is what it is. She just reached over and she gave me a book. She says, here's a, here's a book on your number just take it. Just took it and just gave it to me. And what I remember, I remember the kindness of that moment. It's as simple as that. This is not, a, this is not rocket science. Love is the act of showing to someone else something that is undue, but is a great um, gift or kindness to them. It can be a word of encouragement. It can be an email. It can be a text. It can be a hug. It can be a moment where you're just connecting. You give them a book. Whatever it might be, it can be there. Love is kind. It's that action of doing that. It is what God did through Christ by sending him to the cross. We read, we read in Romans, Paul writes there, he says, do not forget, it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. And he goes on to talk about Christ's crucifixion. That is the act of sending Christ for us. It is an act of kindness to all of us. Now, let me be honest about this for a minute. Let me be open about this. There's a distance between patience and kindness for all of us. In other words, I can be patient with you in my mind, but I may not be ready to be kind with you yet. Let me just reveal my own tension and struggle there. A couple of weeks ago, someone Um, had an interaction with our family. They hurt me and they hurt our family. I still today think they were wrong in what they did. I still right now have lost trust with them. I don't have a great relationship with them at the moment. I don't consider them an enemy, but I'm also not ready to have them over to have a cookout at the current moment. Okay? So what does love is patient, love is kind mean? If I can be honest with you, love is patient forces me to rethink how many football fields, if you will, will I add to allow them to stay in my relational circle before I kick them out? How much space am I willing to give to them? Can I be patient in my attitude? That is a safer place to start. Love is kind. (laughs) If I'll be honest with you, I'm not sure I'm ready to be kind right now. I'm not sure I'm ready, and yet I want to be, but I've also been hurt. I'm not sure I'm ready yet. And there's this tension, and here's what it reveals to me. When I am not ready to take that next step toward kindness, it reveals that there may need to be healing that happens between relationships. There's a gap that exists between me and you. If I can be, quote-unquote, patient with you, but I'm not willing to be kind with you, that can be a self-test to say... Is there some work I need to do to heal this relationship? And that is where I sit right now. I think there's some work to do. This is where Paul pushes on it. Love is patient. You can sit in your chair and be patient in your head. But when it comes to the action that forces the issue, love is willing to be kind. And then he goes on to say three more things. And these seem kind of off the, the point, but they're actually not. They're related. He says, love... Basically, it does not envy, it doesn't boast, and it is not proud. Now, again, these seem unrelated, they're not. Um, we, we understand envy really simply, let me put it this way. If you can imagine these, we've got three um, red circles, three circles up here. We've got a red, blue, and a green circle, all right? So let's, let's say, for the fun of it, that these represent a car right now, all right? Let's say I have a red car, and you have a blue blue car on this side, and this side has a green car. I'm perfectly content with my red car until I see your blue car or until I see your green car, and now all of a sudden I have blue envy and green envy. I want something else. We understand envy to be that way. It it makes a ton of sense. Uh, You have something that I want. I have something you want, and I want to get after it, and love doesn't envy. Makes sense. We can also do this. Let's change the analogy, do this with clothes. I'm perfectly fine in mine until I see yours, and I need more, better, whatever it is. I don't know. In Paul's context, he's writing, and earlier in the letter, he wrote this. He said, some of you are following Paul. Some of you are following Apollos, and some of you are following Cephas or Peter. It's as if he's changing the understanding of envy and saying, it's not just about envying about cars or clothes. It's also in this context, uh, envying leaders. Some of you get to sit under Cephas's teaching. You must love that. But then when you're under Cephas, you see that Apollos over here, they have Apollos, man, they must be better. He's a better teacher. Oh, some of you follow Paul. (laughs) Paul's an even better teacher. And we envy, he said. And here's the nuance that is important, I think, to understand when Paul is writing this, that envy isn't just sitting here in my seat and envying the things that you have. That's too simple. Envy is also positioning ourselves to gain a greater following by putting you down so that I can get more of a platform for myself. Envy is saying, I want to be the red leader, but my circle, in order for me to have people follow me as a leader... I need to talk badly about the blue and the green, and I need to stir up envy for the blue and the green followers to prove to them that I'm such a better leader than they are. And the only way to do that is to talk down to them and create strife and rivalry. We see this happen, by the way, sometimes, definitely not all the time, sometimes when parents get divorced. Husband goes one way, wife goes the other. There is anger in that relationship, and the kids are in play. How are they going to view mom? How are they going to view dad? Well, with mom, sometimes she talks bad about dad. Why? To gain the affection of her kids and to stir up an envy and a rivalry there. Definitely doesn't happen all the time. Happens in businesses all the time. The boss walks in, they say something really profound, at least they think it is, and the employees don't think so, and the employees start talking bad about them, trying to create this strife and rivalry, saying, who are you going to follow? Are you going to do what the boss says? Are you good at two shoes? Are you going to do what we all know we should do? And we create a strife and a rivalry around envy. It doesn't envy, he says it doesn't envy, it doesn't boast, and it is not proud. Believe it or not, this is kind of funny. That term for boasting literally means to be a windbag. How about that? (laughs) That's a good word, to be a windbag. Saying love doesn't do these things. Love doesn't just promote yourself. It doesn't create rivalry and strife among relationships. Love does not set up my best against your worst. Love doesn't look at why you're late to the meeting and say, man, I would never be late to that meeting. Like, I, in my best moment, I've never been late to a meeting like that. I mean, I've been late to other meetings, but, but not to this one. Love doesn't do these things. And so what Paul is saying is love is patient and kind in a positive way, but also in terms of how we relate to each other. It doesn't envy or call for it. It doesn't boast about myself over you, and it isn't proud over you again. And so all of these things come together to address the space that exists between me and you. And so I go back to kind of my question that I go back to at the beginning. Does Christian love require something different? Does Christian love require something different? Or do we just get to be Christians so we get to go to heaven forever and we live today like everybody else? And this is why I might say that Christian love reimagines the space between me and you. The gaps that exist when I throw a flag on you and you throw a flag on me, and I begin to get pushed back and back and back and back and back and back and back. How far back are you willing to take me? How patient are you willing to be with me? How much kindness are you willing to show me? And how much are you willing to avoid the envy or the strife, the boasting or the pride? That comes in the negative side. And so I have three questions for us this morning. Number one is this Does love require that I give someone another chance? I'm gonna get very practical with this. And this is why I wanted to talk, particularly at the beginning, about abusive relationships. This may not be right if you're in an abusive relationship, you may need to just get out. Outside of that, does love require that I give someone another chance? I mean, for real? enemy love is never easy, right? Enemy love is never easy. It was never meant to be easy. There's a reason why about 90% of Christians in North America are friends with people who are almost identical to them. But does Christian love require something more? Is there somebody, I want to challenge you personally with this, is there someone right now that you need to give another chance to? you've already written them off. They're they're 50 yards back. They're out of your football field. They're not even in the sphere anymore, and you have no interest or desire to go there. Love is patient. What does that mean for you? That requires great wisdom. Relationships are tricky. I don't come with judgment. I come asking the questions. Does love also require that I show kindness to an enemy? It's my second question. I've already revealed to you that I'm not sure that I'm ready to do that in this moment in this one relationship, if I can be honest with you. But it pushes on me to ask, why not? Is it wise for me not to do that, or is it because I'm stuck in holding bitterness that will ultimately corrode and ruin me in that relationship? Or is that a matter of wisdom? Does love require that you show kindness to an enemy? Not just an attitude of patience, but is there someone who you need to rethink, this is how I live with them, this is how I think with them. I need to be kind, take action in a positive way toward them. To text them, to call them, to email, to serve a meal to, to provide something at work for, to help them at school with. Do I need to show kindness to an enemy? And then my third question is this: Am I positioning myself against another? If love doesn't envy, and it doesn't boast and isn't proud, is there anyone whom I am positioning myself against? who I would say, my success is going to be contingent upon and necessary it's necessary that they fail, or be degraded so that I can win, that I can create a culture and climate of rivalry and envy. People will be glad they're my friend and upset when they're not. Am I positioning myself against another in any relationship uh, that we have? Now, let me finish with this. I promise I'm close to finishing. Let's just honestly ask, why consider going through all this? I mean, you're gonna have lunch in a few minutes. Actually, we have a fellowship meal here here today, by the way, so good, good for us. We're gonna have lunch, we're gonna go on with our day, I think tomorrow the Sixers play a game. You've got uh, work to go to. you got kids to take care of. I mean, really, you got a schedule that's set. You have a little, little bit of energy to spend here and there, for, for real. Why consider, why consider taking the time to rethink your relationships like this? Why well, do that? Because I'm asking for some work. And I guess I would just put it this way. For me, it's because God, through Christ, loved me this way. And I think God through Christ loves you this way. It's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. It's the gift of God through Christ in his long suffering mercy that he's slow to anger, he's abounding in love. I'm so grateful that he withholds judgment from me with incredible regularity. And I'm so grateful that he has shown kindness by sending Christ to die for me and for you. it just, I don't always want to do that to you, and you don't always want to do that to me, because it's pretty clear cherry tomatoes are not candy, right? And I'd rather hang with people who understand their vegetables, and it would never serve them to me as a snack, because I couldn't handle that. And unfortunately, unfortunately, what we end up with is a version of the church where only vegetables worship together and only candy people worship together, where 90% of the people who we hang out with look, think, believe, and support exactly what we do. And the challenge to enemy love, it's not necessary in that world. That's why I want to say, why consider doing this? Because God, through Christ, loved me and loved you this way. With that said, this final offer, and then I'm done. If you want more, I'm sending emails throughout the week on this series. sent one last week and heard some good responses. Thank you for those. Write the greatest on your communication card. We'll give you a little bit more to think about as your week goes on, and we'd love to connect with you that way. All right, is there more for Christian love? I sure hope so, I sure hope so. Will you pray with me? Our good God and Heavenly Father, thank you for the chance to be here this morning to gather around a simple verse. Love is patient, love is kind, doesn't envy, doesn't boast, and is not proud. I pray that you would help us that in the relationships that exist between me and you, between us and the space that exists in there, to reimagine this space not as a space where I have a reason to separate from you, but where I have the opportunity to be patient and kind to you. Father, I pray that you would allow us the courage to let these ideas settle in a little bit below the surface this morning. I pray that you give us wisdom in how we manage this. I pray that you would help us to keep from stepping further into abusive relationships where that is the case, and that may be the case. So these things that I share, Father, I I pray that you would give us wisdom in the application, that conversations are so necessary to work through with the power of your Spirit how to do these things in each unique relationship that we have. But fundamentally, God, I pray that you would help us not to dismiss what we hear because of the extremes. I pray that you would help us to foundationally be patient in our love, kind in our love, to the point where it might even cost us something significant. Father, we love you. Thank you for the time we could share together. In Jesus' name we